This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. Our guest is Annette Liebeskind-Berkowitz. How you doing, Annette? I'm very well, Bob. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you on the program again. This is Annette's second appearance on The Historian's. Last year, she told about her memoir, In the Unlikeliest of Places, basically the story of her father, Nachman Liebeskind, who survived the Nazis in Poland and the gulags of the Soviet Union, ending up in America and, kind of late in his life, became a well-known artist here in the United States. Annette Liebeskind Berkowitz was born in Kyrgyzstan, one of the uh, Soviet republics, and grew up in post-war Poland and the state of Israel before coming to America at age 16. Her new book is called Confessions of an Accidental Zoo Curator. Uh, The new book, I would say another uh, memoir or a kind of life story, contains stories from her three-decade career at the famous Bronx Zoo and a kind of a parent organization, the Wildlife Conservation Society in New York City. She went on to be one of the leaders of that institution's worldwide science education programs. Her achievements included the first ever agreement to bring environmental education to China's schools. And I mentioned to you, I'd like to start off uh, just kind of talking with you about the history of zoos or or menageries. They're, they were called menageries like in uh, thousands of years ago, right? Well, yes. Uh, you know, archaeologists have found remains of a three-and-a-half-thousand-year-old zoo in Egypt in the ancient city of Hierakonopolis. And they found bones of animals such as elephants, baboons, and hippos, and wild cats. And that really proves that private collections were used by ancient royals to showcase their power. So the more exotic uh, animals they were able to exhibit, uh, the the more impressive uh, their public image. So, Mm -hmm. yes, but the kinds of zoos that we think of uh, as, as... more modern, uh, uh, go back to uh, the 18th century where the Schönbrunn Zoo in Vienna mm-hmm. is recognized as the oldest European zoo, and it opened in 1752. And and I think it might surprise some of your listeners that it was founded by the Holy Roman Emperor Joseph II, who was the husband of Maria Theresa. Huh. Yeah. Now... Uh, also, I found uh, that zoo was short. I never really thought about it, but it's sh- short for zoological, as yeah. in it's a zoological park or zoological uh, garden. And zoological's roots are in, in the Greek word, I believe, for animal, right? Uh, well, my, my, I can't say my Greek is up to date, but I believe <laughs> you're right. Yeah. Yes. Now, you mentioned the zoo in Vienna. And I was reading of in Wikipedia, honestly, that the London Zoo, which opened in 1828 to scientists, was the first zoo or one of the first zoos focused on science. Yes, that's uh, that's true. And the very interesting thing about it is that um, it was close to the public when it opened. It was opened only to scientists for uh, scientific research, uh, but. 20 years later, there was so much public pressure for it to open to the public that it did eventually, uh, in 
I guess it was 1847, opened uh, its gate to the general public. So, um, yes, the history of zoos goes way back. You know, I, I'm going to throw something out here because I think it's a startling fact that few people know that more people visit zoos in America than attend all sports events combined, really? which, which is a mind-boggling <laughs> number. So uh, because it's such a um, hugely popular form of entertainment and in some places education, uh, it, it's good, it, it's good uh, to share a lot of information about it because people go and sometimes aren't aware of the incredible history of zoos mm-hmm. and, and the things that today zoos can do, you know, everything from embryo transfers to uh, using genetic studies to pinpoint wildlife crimes like trading in illegal animal skins. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, this is today's zoo. Those, those, that's not the zoo of the Schoenbrunn and the early London zoo. Mm-hmm. The zoos have really changed. For example, the zoo that, that you worked for, uh, it's opened in 1899. It's, it's been there yeah. in the yeah, Bronx. It was started in 1895, but yes, it, it opened even before the dawn of the 19th century. So it, it goes way back. And it was due to the really foresight of some um, prominent citizens of New York City, Um, all of the most illustrious society names are on the roster of the Board of Trustees. And and they they pooled uh, not just their resources, but their political power to open this public institution, which is it's beloved in the city, and uh, it's a leader worldwide in um, not just exhibition, uh, even though I must say the exhibitions at the Bronx Zoo have been emulated the world over, mm-hmm. but also in, in um, using a zoological collection as a base for saving uh, wildlife in, in its native uh, habitats. And I, I'm... I must say, I was very honored uh, that um, Dr. William Conway was the former president of the Wildlife Conservation Society and for many years the visionary director of the Bronx Zoo, uh, endorsed my book and uh, found it a a remarkable story. Mm -hmm. So I I was very honored because he is a man known worldwide for his zoological acumen and and for his vision and conservation. Well, let me ask you how you got your, the book is, is again, titled Confessions of an Accidental Zoo Curator. And and I was fascinated to read this story. I mean, you were living in New York City, living in an apartment, raising a family, and you basically uh, answered, I think, what they call a blind ad or something like that in one of the newspapers for a job at the zoo. Well, actually, they didn't say it was a job at the zoo. At the time, uh, it was the early 70s. Uh, they did not uh, say in the advertisements that it was a zoo because apparently a lot of sort of nutty people applied for the job. So they just uh, announced the position at the Bronx Cultural Institution. And I, I had no idea what institution I was applying to. So when I had a call uh, asking me uh, to come for an interview, I was totally astounded. I <laughs> I hadn't expected it. I said, a zoo, why are you calling me? <laughs> well, and the rest is history. The interview 
was really emblematic of uh, how women were really not uh, traditional employees of zoos at that time. Uh, Mm -hmm. I was one of the early uh, female employees in a zoo. Uh, I'm very uh, pleased to say that since we're talking about history, the zoos uh, have really evolved not only in terms of exhibition and, and conservation strategies, but also in their uh, approach to hiring practices. Now there are many uh, women zoo directors which would have been completely unheard of in, in 1972 when I was hired. I was uh, a lonely figure at the conferences of the American Association of Zoos and Aquariums when I went to the meetings in those days, but things have changed for the mm-hmm. better, and I'm very happy to say that. And I think you must changed uh, because of your work at the zoo. You um, d- describe in the book how you work. Well, what shall I say? Kind of, sort of fearful of animals. You were not, you know, too <laughs> too comfortable with them. Well, you know, uh, I grew up in post-war Poland, as you mentioned at the, at the outset when you introduced me. In the shadow of the Holocaust, my uh, both my parents' entire families were were slaughtered. So it was a kind of a very grim upbringing, uh, and um, there really uh, wasn't the tradition of having pets. So I I did not grow up with any pets. Uh, I had very little experience with animals. I did have interest in zoology, which I uh, studied uh, in college. Uh, but I, I didn't have any personal experience uh, with animals. So um, uh, I, I might um, seem to be a very ill-suited individual for a job at the zoo, but uh, eventually, um, and it actually happened rather, rather early when I started uh, walking into the magnificent uh, zoo environment every day and and hearing the sounds of the animals and 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 the uh, and the gibbons hooting and the sea lions barking and it was such a lively atmosphere, so full of life and so mm-hmm. different uh, from my upbringing that I really didn't know that that's what I needed to heal my own soul. Mm. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I fell in love with uh, mm-hmm. all the well, creatures, you know. Sometimes people say, what's your favorite animal? <laughs> it, it would be very hard to say. Yeah. I love them all. And, and they threw you right into this. Uh, in fact, I, I, it sounds like you weren't there that long, or it was early on in the book, when you're taking animals down to the Captain Kangaroo television show with all yes. sorts of escapades and whatnot. Yes. Well, you know, the very first day of the zoo, I was taken... Um, to what is in uh, un, not a public area. It's the behind-the-scenes quarters where they kept uh, the animals that were used for education programs and, and animals uh, that were exhibited in, in the children's zoo but were taken off exhibit uh, during the winter. And I walked in there, and the place was a cacophony of animal sounds, and uh, the keepers were bustling about, and they just uh, took me kind of to show me the place. And suddenly a keeper said, hold this, and she was right behind me, and she ended up uh, putting an enormous uh, 
boa constrictor in my arms, and I had <laughs> never <laughs> held an animal. And it was truly a shock, and I felt like this is the moment I'm being tested. If I, if I scream or if I drop this animal, <laughs> it's goodbye to this job. Uh, <laughs> so that, that was kind of a and, quick way of getting out. And, and didn't you have to, you took a cab to the Captain Kangaroo show with the boa constrictor wrapped that, around? Yes, you? yes, not not too much later. Um, the zoo um, uh, used to uh, provide uh, a personnel for the Captain Kangaroo show to show animals to kids and to explain. So yes, I I took <laughs> I took that very boa constrictor that I became acquainted with on my first day at work, uh, <laughs> and at the time they transported uh, uh, the the snakes when they had to go off-premises uh, in pillowcases. And they were out of big pillowcases because this was a huge animal. Uh, <laughs> and the woman who was in charge said, you know, you're wearing this sheepskin coat. You could just wrap it around your waist and you'll keep it nice and warm. It'll be fine. You could go like this. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so I took a cab to the Captain Kangaroo show wearing uh, this uh, huge boa constrictor around my waist. And as the cab became, it was winter, and the cab had the heat on, and as it got warmer and warmer, the, the animals started moving around, and uh, I, I became panicked. I thought, you know, what if it escapes, slides under the seat, or worse yet, you know, comes to my face and takes a chunk of my cheek. Wow. <laughs> so I started adjusting it and adjusting it on my waist, and... Fortunately, by then we were already uh, in Midtown Manhattan, very close to the studio. But the cab driver looked in the mirror and said, "What you got there, lady?" And I, you know, I blurted out the truth because the first thing out of your mouth is always the truth. Mm-hmm. I, I said a bow constrictor, and he totally freaked out. He, <laughs> he drove onto the sidewalk and started screaming, "Get out!" He was terrified. <laughs> Fortunately, I was just a, uh, a few steps away from the uh, studio, but uh, yeah. it was it was, yeah, it was some crazy introduction to my work. <laughs> Annette Liebeskin de Berkowitz is with us on the Historian's Podcast. Her book, Confessions of an Accidental Zoo Curator. We'll be back with uh, more with Annette in just a moment. We depend on your contributions of financial support to keep going with the Historian's Podcast. Please make a donation online at GoFundMe.com forward slash Historians 2017. Or send a donation in the mail. Make the check to Bob Cudmore. Send to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. And thank you very much. Annette Liebeskin-Berkowitz joins us. She worked for three decades at the Bronx Zoo in New York City, spearheaded that institution's worldwide science education programs. Her new book is called Confessions of an Accidental Zoo Curator. And I must say, in terms of the book, you're, it's filled with stories just like the one you just told. But I do want to give you an opportunity to you know, put on your serious face or whatever, because as the, the years went by, you became, uh, I believe you studied uh, more about animals. You uh, rose up the ladder at the, at the zoo, if you will. And uh, you really uh, did a lot with this uh, field of, uh, of wildlife conservation. Can you just tell us more about that? I would be happy to. 
Uh, you know, uh, Bob, we were talking about uh, history, zoo history, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that the Bronx Zoo was the world's first in establishing an education department uh, back in 1929. Uh, but as, as visionary as this goal was, it was extremely limited at the time um, compared to what education departments uh, can do and do now. Uh, but it was my good fortune to be there at the zoo uh, uh, when the the attitude was, well, uh, education, you know, p- people thought of zoos uh, ar- around the world at that time as a place purely for entertainment. Mm-hmm. And there was very little thought given to the idea that, look, these beautiful living creatures could inspire people to learn something. And if people learn something, perhaps they can do something to conserve these animals. And uh, so uh, I grew an education department uh, with uh, very bright and creative people. And uh, we experimented with any number of techniques to work with students uh, to, to give them the idea of the richness of animal life and what the issues were. And we developed uh, all kinds of uh, strategies to test the effectiveness of the programs, which, you know, sometimes uh, in education you think you're doing something positive, but you don't really know what impact it has on the learners. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, I studied uh, evaluation in graduate school, so we, we evaluated our programs very rigorously to see whether they were having any effect. And we found that by getting students excited about studying science, um, life science in general and animals in particular, um, we, we could increase their overall uh, scientific um, knowledge and, and approach to the sciences uh, and the animals were the magnet. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, uh, we uh, over time, uh, this, this took many years and and a lot of uh, effort to gain funding to support this work. But I, I'm pleased to say that uh, we managed to uh, write proposals to the National Science Foundation that almost always received very generous support. Mm-hmm. And, and and nothing succeeds like success. So that uh, our um, efforts uh, uh, were noticed by our trustees, and you know, the the more acknowledgement we had from the outside science world, the more acknowledgement we had uh, within our own institution. And we we created programs to train educators uh, from zoos around the country and eventually from around the world. And our curricula were adopted by 49 out of the 50 states. And eventually uh, they were adapted for use uh, in places as different as, let's say, China and Belize and Central America or Papua New Guinea or India or Bhutan. Uh, mm-hmm. places where wildlife is still extant and still can be saved. So, uh, yes, I started out as as an instructor, and I retired as senior vice president, and I'm 
very uh, pleased to say that I was able to achieve that because of of an extraordinary staff and support that I had over the years. Mm. On the cover of your book is a cat, <laughs> uh, not a little house cat, but a, a cat. Well, what cat kind of cat is it? It's a mountain lion, and you know there is a story in the book. I don't know if you got to it yet, but there's a story of how I fell in love with Carlos the mountain lion. That's him on the cover. It is Carlos. It okay, is because Carlos. I, I did read that because you had kind of a thing about cats. You were particularly uh, fearful of of cats when when you went to the yeah. zoo. Yes, when I when I grew up, I had a bad experience with with uh, cats, and I kind of developed almost a life a lifelong phobia of cats. But strangely enough, Carlos the mountain lion and I were you know we fell in love. <laughs> uh, Carlos was an animal uh, that was um, brought to the zoo. He was still uh, young. And uh, the curators decided that we could use it for education programs. And, of course, you can imagine a classroom of students and, and you know, you come in with a mountain lion. That really gets attention. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it, it was a fabulous animal. But as he grew, you know, he was leaping around our, our uh, education offices and quarters, and he, he became, uh, you know, a nearly mature mountain lion, and I still handled him. And uh, eventually he was deemed to be too too risky, so he he was put in exhibit, and then he had a very sad history that I won't go into, but it's described in the book what, sure. what happened to Carlos. Yes, I did yeah. see that, but yeah, when you say you used him in these uh, classes, I mean, without, I mean, he wasn't in a cage or anything. He no, was no, 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 I, yeah. I held him in my arms, yes. Yeah. Wow. Yes, so for somebody who grew up fearful of pussycats to be handling a mountain lion, it's quite a leap. I guess so. Now, where do the uh, animals come from in zoos? I mean, are they raised in zoos, or how how does that... You know, I am so glad you asked that question, Bob, because a lot of people don't realize that I had actually once uh, written a little uh, piece called uh, Ten Things... Uh, the public doesn't know about zoos. Uh, then I would say 99.9% of the animals in zoos are zoo-bred. Zoos, ex- zoos have a very active program of exchanging animals um, to um, f- for the benefit of their collections, but also to maintain genetic viability of the animals. So the, the animals are not taken from the wild. They're, bred, they're zoo-bred. Okay. And you, um, what? How are they kept? I must confess, I've never been to the Bronx Zoo. Well, well, you will be in for a treat if you ever come, because the the habitats that are that are created there. You take something like the Congo Gorilla Forest; it's truly the closest thing anyone will ever get to being in the Congo and seeing gorillas in their natural habitat. It's it's magnificent. And the, uh, I mean, the old idea or the old idea of having the animals in cages. I imagine some are still in cages, but that's um, that's not the desired pr- practice anymore, is it? And that no, goes... of course not. You want to show animals in the natural habitat, and you also want to show them in in the appropriate social groupings. 
So if you have an animal that is social, like gorillas, for example, or other primates, you don't want to show uh, like a postage stamp collection, one of a kind. Uh, you want to immerse the visitor in the habitat. So actually not only is the animal in the habitat, but in any outstanding zoo exhibit, the visitor himself or herself will be immersed in the habitat. And that's that's what you will see when you when when you come to the Bronx Zoo. I, I'm I'm pleased to say that some of the innovative exhibition techniques from the Bronx Zoo uh, were duplicated in many in many zoos around the country mm-hmm. and around the world. Uh, I remember years ago uh, having a meeting with the director of the Beijing Zoo, and he. Uh, questioned me extensively through a translator about the design of our children's zoo, which at the time was uh, a totally new education concept to like have the children go into it, a facility where they could sit inside of a giant bird nest or climb through a tunnel as an animal would. And uh, so the director there questioned me so extensively about it, and I was wondering, well, what, what, what does he need all of these details? Eventually, find out that they built a, a, a facsimile of our zoo in, in Beijing, and, and that um, that was a, that was all to the good mm-hmm. because we want people to share and spread good ideas. It would have been easier if he just said, you know, uh, perhaps. Uh, we, you could show us the plans. <laughs> <laughs> now, and we're running kind of out of time, or just a few minutes left, but uh, also another personal element comes in toward the end of the book. Uh, toward the end of your career, you were suddenly disabled. You fell at a supermarket uh, and badly hurt, and um, but, but still managed to uh, do work for the zoo, uh, working at home, but then I think maybe when you retired or just before you retired, all of a sudden you and your husband, you know, had more encounters with animals, raccoons and pigeons <laughs> yes, that, you know, that I bothered you. I shattered my leg and I, I was in a wheelchair for almost a year. But um, after I retired, we had some very unpleasant experiences with pigeons, which it, it's a very funny story and it's, it's detailed uh in in one of the last chapters of the book uh, but but it really made me think about um conservation in in a somewhat different light which conservation is difficult conservation in those habitats around the world in Africa and Asia and South America where people live close to the animals where there's a conflict between humans and wildlife uh you know, when you have to live with wildlife right uh, at your back door, it, it puts a puts a different perspective on on how conservation should be done and how local communities should uh, reap the benefits of living near wildlife uh, if they have to sacrifice some of their uh, safety and convenience. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, I reflect on that uh, in the last chapter of the book. Hmm. Will, will zoos continue to uh, prosper? I certainly hope so, because uh, zoos, uh, with the, these modern uh, uh, exhibition techniques, with the modern education programs, 
Uh, people probably don't know that the 229 accredited zoos in the U.S. contribute uh, somewhere around $160 million each year to conservation efforts abroad. Uh, not just uh, this is this this is funding supply by visitors to zoos that ends up going to countries all over the world where where there are programs to save wildlife. So zoos are not only teaching and enlightening the American public, but providing resources for conservation abroad, which which is where a lot of the conservation work needs to happen in order for us to uh, maintain the, mm. the most beautiful animals. You know, if you want to see yeah. tigers in the future, if you want to see gorillas in mm-hmm. the future, okay. uh, then then we need to do something to, to provide funding. Okay. Annette, I'm sorry, we're, we're just out of time. Annette Liebeskin Berkowitz is author of Confessions of an Accidental Zoo Curator. She's been our guest on the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cutmore. 